The parable of the treasure and the pearl from Matthew chapter 13 verses 44 to 46. So this morning we continue our series in the king, on the kingdom of God and we, as, as part of our study into the kingdom of God we are looking at some of the parables which Jesus told to explain to us, to teach us what the kingdom of God was like. There are two parables that I would like to look at this morning, very short. The parable of the treasure in the field and the parable of the pearl merchant. Now we will deal with both of these parables together as they are considered a pair. And this is because there are parallel themes in both, even though there are some slight differences as well. Now, over the years, there have been various interpretations of what the treasure and the pearl stand for. One popular view is that the treasure stands for Israel and the man who sold everything to purchase her was Jesus. Then, in the next parable, the pearl stands for the church that Jesus purchased. In... uh, In the cults, in the sects and the cults, uh, they are given to wild interpretations as well. So uh, in Mormonism, the Pearl of Great Price is the title for a selection of writings of Joseph Smith, who who founded the, the sect. Now this morning we will try and avoid allegory and 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 speculations, but still draw very important lessons from the Word of God. And the first lesson for us this morning is the hiddenness, the hiddenness of the kingdom from verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom is not simply like a treasure, but its situation is like the situation of a treasure hidden in a field. Ding, ding, ding. The bell should be ringing. It didn't fall down. It isn't lost. It is deliberately hidden. Finding the treasure appears to be by chance. And historically we know that all the land in Israel has been ravaged by wars over thousands of years. And imagine when marauding raiders come and invade your land when there are wars after wars. Where would you store your treasure? There are no banks, there are no safes that would be safe for you to put your important valuables. And eventually everything is worthless anyway because they come and raid and take everything. So you had no choice but to whatever treasure you had, whatever gold, whatever family heirlooms heirlooms you might have brought or you kept for generations, you would hide them somewhere. In Paraguay there's a story... uh, Paraguay has been the 
country where I was born in South America, had been through many wars. And there was a very particularly bloody war in the 1870s when Paraguay uh, took on three countries, just because. Uh, so Argentina, Brazil and, and Uruguay, the most powerful countries in South America. Um, and they lost, obviously, and most of the population was absolutely decimated, lost a lot of land. But the, the, the marshal at the time, uh, the, the general, they say that he hid his treasure in a lake somewhere, which is, and because there was a glow in the afternoons, they say, oh, look, the treasure from the, uh, from the, from the marshal, his treasure, which is hidden there in the lake, is glowing because of the, the sunset. So that, anyway, that's, that's part of the, the legend of the marshal, but the war was real. So you can imagine, you can imagine these things happening. People hiding their treasure in a field somewhere. So in those days, actually finding a treasure would be an extremely fortunate event. Nowadays, nowadays they look at history books, they hunt for treasure in the seas, in land, and they get their detectors and scanners and they try and find where this treasure is. Under rabbinic law, uh, if a worker found a treasure in a field and lifted it out, it would belong to his master, the owner of the field. But here, knowing that law, the man is careful not to lift it out till he goes out and buys the whole field. Just to be clear, we are not dealing with the morality or otherwise of his action here. Okay? The point here is not the questionable ethics of the man, but the point is the incredible value of the treasure that was hidden, but he stumbled upon it. There is no doubt that there is a hiddenness about the kingdom, a certain mysteriousness of the kingdom. And if this was the only place where we would see that, you say, well, Paul, you're stretching the point here. But no, the word used here is similar to other places where Jesus himself said in Matthew 11:25, for example, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden, you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. To little children. And you look around at the wise and the learned today, and they can't see it. Their eyes are blinded to truth. It's there, it's there, look, it's, it's there. No, no, can't see it. Can't see it. And yet little children understand it. That's why Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you will not enter, you will not see the kingdom. Now in 
Of course, this does not excuse uh, just laziness and not wanting to study. I don't want to be smart. I want to be stupid so I can understand the kingdom. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what it's about. Now, in his sovereign grace, things were sometimes hidden even from his own disciples. For example, after Jesus announced his death to them, in Luke, we read in Luke 18.34, the disciples did not understand any of, any of this. Why? Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. Let's be honest and, 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 and humbly recognise this truth that without revelation, without God opening our eyes through his Holy Spirit, that we will not be able to understand any of this truth, much less commit our lives, our, our whole hearts to it. It's simply foolishness to most people out there, including the wise and the learned, and sometimes especially the wise and the learned. Now, some might think this is totally unfair. What on earth? How are they supposed... Well, last week we spoke about the whole issue of fairness in the kingdom of God, did we not? And And it's different to our understanding of fairness and what is just. At the same time, some might say, if I haven't got a chance, what's the point? Why even try? Well, here's a true story from a very influential figure in Christianity. And uh, there are countless other stories like it. Maybe even your own. This is what he said. And I'll just repeat what he said. I was weeping in the most bitter contrition of heart, when I heard the voice of children from a neighbouring house chanting, take up and read, take up and read. I could not remember ever having heard the like. So, checking the torrent of my tears, I arose, interpreting it to be no other than a command from God to open the book and read the first chapter I should find. Eagerly, then I returned to the place where I had laid the volume of the Apostle. I seized, opened, and in silence read that section on which my eyes first fell. This is what he read. Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfil its lusts. That's what he read. No further would I read, nor did I need to, for instantly at the end of this sentence, it seemed as if a light of serenity infused into my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Who said that? St. Augustine. Around about the year 400, 450 
AD. A very, very, very influential figure in Christianity. But it is God then, it is God then who creates the hunger, the thirst, the willingness to, to go and search after truth. What did Jesus say? He said, those who seek shall find. Those who knock, the door will be open. Keep seeking, keep knocking. We take, which takes us to the next story. We jump to the next parable now. The pursuit, the pursuit. And this is what we read. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. The word used there for a, a merchant man does not refer to a local merchant or your local jeweller who, who has his shop in the arcade, for example. This merchant was a man who travels around the world to buy what he wants. In those days, he might have travelled by ship or by camel. He couldn't just click online and buy it online. These days, he actually had to go and check out and get the merchandise himself. And the travelling merchant was He wasn't searching for the good pearl. He wasn't searching for the, for, for something that was, okay, pretty good. He was searching for the very best in fine pearls. Pearls, you see, were highly valued in the ancient world because of the fantastic prices that they could fetch. And the pearl was the, the most cherished jewel. And this man knew precisely what he was looking for. Now, unlike our merchant, there are many people who don't really know what they are looking for today. Let me ask, do you know what you are looking for? Do you know where you are going? Where are you going to find what you're looking for? Someone observed that too many people are guided by the Columbus principle to life, named after the famous explorer Christopher Columbus who discovered the Americas in, in 1492. And this is the principle. They don't know where they are going and when they get there they don't know where they are and when they leave they don't know where they've been. Bit of a description of today, isn't it? But high standards cannot be easily satisfied. The man could not be satisfied with anything with shine that might look like a pearl because he knew, as an expert, he knew what he was looking for. His standards were high, the very highest. And and so when he came across this, it was the, the very finest, the best pearl he had ever seen. More than that, he probably built a reputation as a merchant, as a valuer as well. He he had won the confidence and respect of others who would come to him and ask him, how much do you think this is worth? He knew it. 
as Christians, we need to have a high sense of value. We need to know how to place value on things. If we don't, who will? We can't be simply be guided by what everybody else thinks is the standard, is the value. Because otherwise our standards will be forever compromised. To compromise and settle for what the world is, is saying is, is worth, well, well, eventually our standards will be lower and lower and lower. Yeah, that's fine. Doesn't matter. It looks good, mate. Just give it a bit of a rub, you know. She'd be right. But for this merchant to, to compromise and, and, and settle for imitation pearls would have defeated his whole purpose. And what is compromise? It is settling for something less than what God has for us. So this is why we read in Romans, we read, do not conform to any, don't, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Romans 12 too. There is no compromise in God's kingdom. Thirdly, the value. In verses 44 and verse 45. Verse 44, like treasure hidden in a field when a man found it. And then verse 45 to the merchant, when he found one of great value. So this is where we bring both parables together and join the themes. The first man stumbled upon a treasure and obviously knew it was a treasure when he looked at it closer and then suddenly his shovel probably hit something and discovered what he had found. That's the first man. He, was, he stumbled upon it. But the second man was a trader who was searching. He made pearls the pursuit of his life. So when he found the pearl of great price, he was sure he knew its worth. We spoke about his sense of value. He, it was, he knew what it was worth immediately. He didn't have to be convinced. He didn't have to be sold the pearl. He didn't have to have some salesman telling him what a great deal it was. He was trained for it all his life. How do you value treasure? They say uh, one man's trash is another man's treasure. But honestly, come on, if you found a treasure in a field and shiny gold and all that, surely you'd be able to recognise it. And in those days, perhaps it, it, it would have, the treasure would have just been worth its weight in gold. And so you, you, you get a, a sense of its value by just going and checking the, the gold rate. But nowadays, they look at something and, and more than its weight it's, it's in gold, it, it's, it's its historical significance. Is this from 
some dynasty or from the 14th century or even from the, the Roman times, then, then it is priceless. How do you value pearls? You can spend $20, they say, for a pearl necklace of genuine freshwater cultured pearls, which are slightly round pearls, but not really round for that price. Or you can pay a record-breaking price for a South Sea pearl necklace that sold at Sotheby's for $2.3 million. Imagine walking around Liverpool with that. The trained eye knows value. And they often say that the value of something is simply calculated by what someone is prepared to pay for it. And we often, we often conclude that simply because many are, are rushing, rushing after certain things, that they must be of great worth. But not all that glitters is gold. When you have a proper sense of values, you will not simply go after something because everybody else is. You can get caught out in the biggest of scams. When I was a boy in Paraguay, um, we had chickens in a pen. Lived in a small town in the country. At times I would feed the scraps from the, the meal to them and then just sit there outside the pen and observe their behaviour. And uh, as you know, when you're feeding the scraps to the chooks, there's always a, a bigger scrap than, and then you have the smaller, the smaller bits. So one chicken would grab the big piece and run And because the other chooks see him running or her running, then the other chooks follow. They leave whatever they have found, whatever they are on, they would leave that and follow the other one that's running. You've seen this behaviour if you had a chook pen, right? But do you think, it's pretty funny, but do you think that humans are any smarter than that? Do you value what you have at home, your blessings? You have a roof, you have a bed, you have a fridge, you have a pantry with food, you have a car, you have a job, you have your health, church community, you have your faith. And, and just because... Everybody else doesn't put a lot of value on, on that. Don't be tempted to just leave it behind and, 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 and race after whatever else everybody else is, 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 is following. Because you're not, you will not be contented. But the whole system out there is to create discontent in you. 
value the treasure that you already have, how much God has already blessed you. Don't follow the scraps that everybody else is following. Don't go, don't follow the chicken philosophy of life, is what I'm saying. A proper sense of value chooses things that are worthy rather than that which is popular. Now, you might have noticed the lack of trust in authority today. It might be a policeman. They're very unpopular, unfortunately. And through all of this pandemic, people don't trust doctors very much. That's another person in authority in our community. Doctors are pretty important. We haven't trusted politicians for a while. And so on. And one description that suits our age is an age of cynicism. Cynicism. Oscar Wilde once said, A cynic is a man who knows the price of everything but the value of nothing. And particularly youth today have seen affluence and abundance that we could not have imagined 50 or 70 or 100 years ago. It's all in front of us, but we do not value it. And much less, think about what is happening in the news, in the media, the demonstrations. They do not value the cost of freedom that some of our grandparents and parents maybe have had to pay for us to enjoy the life that we have right now. What's worse, there is an active attempt to delete history, our past, because somehow we are embarrassed by it. Serious? As a consequence, with nothing to look backward with pride to stand upon what they have built to stand on their shoulders nothing to look backward with pride once you delete that upon which you can stand there is nothing actually to look forward to with hope if you destroy the past which gives you some sense of direction of value and, and, and history and, and where you are going what, are you, what will you be looking forward to in hope? This is all very deliberate by the enemy, by the way. Very, very deliberate. So what happens is you become a prisoner of the now and simply follow the agenda of whoever is shouting the loudest. That's what you become a prisoner to. And it's sad. You see the comments on social media and news. 
Let's go back to Jesus. There were many causes that Jesus could have thrown himself behind in his day. As God, man, he could have changed everything. Sometimes with a click of a finger, with simply speaking it, he could change someone's future, someone's condition. And he did. But not with everybody. And as soon as he fed the thousands, they came to him because they wanted to make him king. Look, if you can fix our our food shortage problem, why can't you be our king? You can throw out the Romans. Throw out the oppressors. Please be our king. And he walked away. He went somewhere else. Because he even lost disciples. He even lost disciples. They stopped following him because he would not surrender to their political agenda. He would not surrender to their immediate need. Why? Because he came to inaugurate a kingdom, another kingdom that was not of this world. And yes, he is sovereign over both kingdoms. They are distinct, very different kingdoms, but be assured that Christ's God is sovereign over both. But they're very different. And lastly, the sacrifice. Verses 44 and 46. When a man bought it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. And then to the pearl, and when he had found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. It is, again, let me reiterate the point, it is because both of these fellows knew what was in front of them, that they were willing to sacrifice, they were willing to sell all that they had in order to take possession of that which they had found. Financially, this is a very risky move. But it is a once in a lifetime opportunity. The usual advice is caution. Don't put all your eggs in the one basket. Gee, I'm really rolling with the sayings today, aren't I? A lot of cliches this morning. The the first one who found the treasure sold all he had to buy the field that contained the treasure in it. He bought the field. So there was still a backup plan because even if the treasure, he took it to a valuer, even if he took the treasure and said, mate, sorry, it's all tin, it's just, you know, worthless pretty much, he still had the field as a backup plan. He just bought a field. For the pearl merchant, however, the stakes were higher. He literally put the whole house on a pearl. But his wisdom, gained through experience, his high standards, his sense of value, gave him an idea of what he had in front of him. 
his trained eye convinced him that what he had come across was worth all that he had, all the wealth that he had amassed over trading over so much time. It says, put it all, put the whole house on it. This is it. So, even if he had found it, it would all have been futile if he had not been willing to sell all he had in order to purchase the pearl of great price. Not everyone is prepared to pay full price for something like this. For example, when you need to... uh, when you buy a ring and you maybe you're trying to get insurance for it because of your contents insurance in your house and you want to insure it, you probably need to get a separate or specific clause in there about the particular jewellery that you have in your house. You have to take it to a valuer. He writes a letter and says, this is what it's worth. That is what he writes is what this thing is, is worth whether or not the jeweller himself is willing to pay that much money for it is another question altogether, right? He doesn't have to buy it, so he just says, oh, this is what it's worth. Maybe uh, many a known uh, jeweller will say it's worth $10,000 when in fact he'll only be willing to pay you 5000 or even less for said ring or jewellery, whatever it is. And I think it is precisely at this point that many of us fail. We want the treasure. We know its worth. We know the value of the pearl. But we are simply not willing to pay for it. The sacrifice that is involved in obtaining it. Are we? If you know something is a good investment... Don't you think it's worth getting it? And we move here from physical to the spiritual. The first one was, we're going to look at two characters. The first one was, uh, is a story from Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, What good must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus answered, verse 21, If you want to be perfect, go, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and what? You will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So swap all your treasures, all of that, Sell all of that to buy the perfect pearl that, I'm, that is in front of you. And what happened? He walked away dejected as he was not willing to put it all on the line. He's not the only one, by the way. He's not the only one. Then we have another character in the New Testament who described it This way, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. That's what he said. He said, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth, ding, ding, 
worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as scraps, as rubbish. There is actually a stronger word in the Greek. In order that I may gain Christ. Put it all, put it all, put it all on the house. Put the whole house on this treasure. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See the difference between the two? A sacrificial spirit forsakes all that comes between oneself and God because of a genuine love for God, for his kingdom. And although the merchant gave all that he had, he knew that the pearl was worth much more than all that he had. The value was still there. And the treasure and the pearl, you see, will never cost less than all you have and all you are. And there won't be a cent left over. It's everything. Let's remember that this parable is about the kingdom of God and its infinite eternal value. And the question is what we intend to do with the kingdom of God. We know its worth, we know its value. Are we willing to pay the price? As as someone said, it is the cost of discipleship, isn't it? Jesus is telling us to go for it. Because whatever it costs you to buy that treasure, to buy that field, to buy that pearl, it is worth it. And whatever the cost to gain that pearl of great price, it will be worth it all. Because remember that whatever price we pay will fail in comparison to what Christ has already paid for our redemption. The highest of the costs has already been paid. It costs the Son of God everything so that you can get a glimpse of this treasure and pearl. He has opened your eyes to truth. You know what it's worth. He's saying, go for it. Go for it as a child of the kingdom. Live to the higher value of the kingdom. Don't surrender to the scraps of this world. This is why Jesus came and this is what the kingdom of God is about. And we are to be eternally thankful for his amazing gift and his sacrifice. Amen. Let us sing of the goodness of God.